Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. And welcome everyone to the 34 Circe Salon. This is Make Matriarchy Great Again. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and I am here with Don Sam Alden. Welcome, welcome everyone. Let's give you a proper greeting. <laughs> we are going to talk about a novel, and a novel that is dear to us here because it is called Circe. Exactly. Uh, our patron goddess. A patron goddess. Indeed. indeed. But before we launch into that, I just wanted to say uh, that this may be uh, the last. Um, podcast you hear for sh- uh, before a short break and the reason is that I am going under the knife I am uh, I am heading into some surgery in less than a week and I do not know how long it's going to take to recover so our wonderful listeners we beg your patience um, while I uh, while I heal and um, also prepare from firsthand experience uh, being a bad Martha episode on hysterectomies, since that is what I am getting. So um, looking forward to the next time we are able to record. But in the meantime, this is a lovely way to start a break because we are talking about Circe, uh, the novel, the goddess, uh, for whom one of the sources for whom this podcast is named. The other is, of course, 34 Circe, the star. Well, if I could be old-fashioned, before we go back to that, since you've announced that, I would like to say I wish you, I, my, in my own faith traditions, my prayers for you and good thoughts and good energy, and may the listeners also do the same, uh, that you just have a very quick, speedy recovery and that all will be well. And um, and we may see if we, uh, less importantly, we may see if we can surprise you with a few things in the interim for the listener, but most important is getting you back in action, all healed and well. Thank you. Thank you. I right, look now, forward to I, that as well, indeed. Uh, I hope soon. So now to Cersei. So this novel, um, I had... The novel came out not long after I think I think around about the same time that the name for this podcast and for the company that we have uh, came up. And let me just talk a little bit about just the name and why Cersei was important to us as as a name and why how it came about, um, and then kind of use that to lead into the story and Madeline Miller's book. So. Uh, I've been part of something, I'd created something called Artemis, because as listeners will know, Artemis and Freya are two goddesses I love very much. And Artemis was uh, about female action and female action heroes, and we will be doing that same kind of stuff. You will hear that here often. But this was going to be, Circe was meant to be something that would create a kind of magical work for women's stories. We were doing stuff in VR. We are doing stuff that would play with 3D, things of that sort, so that we would use 
these kinds of new technologies to tell old tales and new tales of women. And so Circe uh, was thought to really be the goddess who best embodies that because we've always got to ride with a goddess. Always Absolutely. have to ride with a goddess. And as the so, goddess of magic and transformation, she was a good choice. Perfect for this. Now, the book came out, and I had heard a lot about it. It was in the New York Times bestsellers, and it was I was just hearing a lot of a buzz. And I first encountered it through the audio book, which was read by uh, Perdita Weeks. I think I get it right. Uh, she plays Higgins, or played, because I think the show has been canceled, on the new Magnum PI, and I fell in love with just the way she read it and the words and the books, and so I thought it was great. And then, Don, you read it, and let's maybe just start with that. What did you think of it overall? Indeed. Um, well, I loved the book. Um, it's one of uh, I read two books about alternate takes of the Homeric legends. Um, one right after the other. The first one I read was The Silence of the Girls, um, which is a take on the Iliad from the viewpoint of Briseis, um, Achilles' uh, captive slave. Um, and uh, then this one, uh, Circe. And um, of the two, I, I much prefer Circe. Uh, the Silence of the Girls, don't get me wrong, is beautifully written. Um, and it's a very um, wrenching portrait of uh, of a character who is barely mentioned as having any importance other than, you know, the point of argument between two dudes um, in uh, in the Iliad by Homer. But um, but it, it is a it is a very depressing. I found it anyway, a very depressing book about a character who has no agency whatsoever at any point during her story. And, um, and you just basically see her tossed from one abusive situation to another. So, um, so this book was uh, much more uh, along the lines of books that I like to read, which is, um, you know, the internal life and the, um, the, I guess, in many ways, coming of age and coming into power of a character who was born in uh, difficult circumstances for herself. And, uh, and she is a compelling character. She is, um, she has a lot of handicaps. She's the, the writer gives her a lot of handicaps um, all the way through the, the story. But um, by the end, she has finally uh, figured out who she is and is able to um, act on fulfilling her own destiny. So, yeah, in general, you know, overview, um, I, I uh, really enjoyed the book and, and would definitely recommend it to especially fans of Greek mythology. I love the book as well. And just to say something on um, the Iliad and uh, the love slave, Perseus, the... Interesting thing about that is, for the listener, we have a companion podcast called 34 Circe Parallax, and we spend a lot of time on anything from ancient world to space to modern topics, but we've been mostly focused on um, going through the epic tales, and we had we did a chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast, each podcast on one of the chapters of the Iliad, 
And what came up as we talked about this particular story is how whitewashed this story, that particular story gets. I won't spend a lot of time on it because this is about Cersei, but I just think it's important to point out is we did an episode on the film Troy showing how the film differed from the story. And in the film Troy, they of course make Achilles this romantic partner for this this character who in point of fact in the actual Iliad is a, a war captive a war love slave a sex slave in war yeah there's so, no yeah, love involved. there's no love yeah. <laughs> there's no love yeah there's no love she's just there's a no sex love. slave she's a sex slave exactly so i could see how that would not have right, how that would weigh you down in a lot of ways and cersei i i feel the same way the thing for me and i i was thinking a lot about this and how I could describe my feeling because I've listened, I've gone through Cersei two or three times at this point now, and it's like going through a dream for me. So it's, it's, it's been interesting. It's hard for me to hold on to specific details of the story. I feel like I've dreamt through this story and that's a testament to Madeline Miller's writing. I think her writing is beautiful. I, I, I think it's very lyrical. I think that the, she, she paints images really well. And obviously I feel a connection with the character of Cersei, but particularly the way, like you say, this interior life of hers and seeing this character in particular, this female character, this, and this goddess who is an overlooked, she's, she's the ugly, you know, not stepchild, actual child, but to use that, uh, old phrase, she is like the ugly stepchild. She's pushed to the side. She's, she's outcast. She's an outcast. Over Absolutely. and over again, she's outcast. Yeah, she's cast out by her, you know, her fa the family of the gods. She's cast onto this island. She's exiled to this island. She's used as, as you know, in some ways a political pawn by the gods. Um, and, oh boy, the gods come off as, as assholes in this... Uh, it in this, in this story. Yeah. I mean, it's to me, one of the things I love most, and again, I've talked about this on the other podcast in terms of looking at how films portray the stories of the, the great Greek epics. And one of my, my personal big complaint about modern cinema that tells the story of the Iliad or the Odyssey or the great Greek works is they completely remove the gods. I did this in Hercules as well. Well, why do I think that's important? The real is the gods are part of the fabric of these tales. They give the tales its its magic and its life and its soul, so to speak, to use the phrase with the god. And so much of modern cinema looks to explain why the Greeks believed in God. You know, not to go down the whole road of belief or not, but it take but the bottom line is it takes away that that kind of like depth to it. And what I loved in this book is the way it almost goes. In the other direction, the gods are just assumed, and they're very, very real and human. I wanted to read, actually, let me read one of the passages uh, just, just a little bit, uh, because it is about what you were saying. You know, she's been she's been cast off all throughout the book. She's overlooked. She still survives. She she finds a way to to make her own space in this cosmic world. And, and we should in say, the end, and we should say. Sorry, yes. um, she is immortal in this yes. in this telling of the book. She is she is enough of a goddess that she is immortal, despite the fact that she has some very 
um, mortal characteristics. Uh, the one that her siblings object to the most is her voice. She has a human voice as opposed to a god voice. Um, but she is immortal, so she, we see her travel through um, a bunch of stories of mortal lives because she's alive through all of them. Which is, again, a very fascinating um, construct to use. I think that's great. And also the Greek gods, the great thing about the Greek mythology is they are so human anyway. They are just not really most of the time the Greek guards uh, in the actual in, in the myth in the mythologies themselves are not really nice people, no. so to speak. No. Um, but it's it's interesting when she finally decides, you know, she's been exiled to an island. So we'll go through the whole story, but one of the key points is that she gets exiled to an island for something she has done, right? So now she's been cast off and then the millennia go by and she's still in this island. And finally, you know, after we go through all those stories, we get to the end and she wants her father, who is Helios. And I, I'd like to go through her sort of lineage a little bit too, just so to give the listener a little bit of background of her and her lineage, but just to, to read some of Madeline Moore's writing, the way she humanizes the interaction between the two. Here's a father who doesn't think much of this not very goddess-like in his eyes daughter in terms of their beauty and power and all this kind of uh, things that transcend. But she says, and so this is what goes on, Helios, her father, is summoned. She summons him to her island and says, Helios was not a god to be summoned, but I was the wayward daughter who had one Trigon's tale God's love novelty, as I have said, they are curious as cats. He stepped from the air. He was wearing his crown, and its rays turned my beach to gold. The purple of his clothes was as rich as deep-pooled blood. Hundreds of years, and not a thread had changed. He was still the same image that had been seared upon me from my birth. I am come, he said. His voice rolled like heat from a bonfire. I seek an end to my exile, I said. There is none. You are punished for eternity. I ask you to go to Zeus and speak on my behalf. Tell him you would take it as a favor to release me. His face was more incredulous than angry. Why would I do such a thing? Just that little interaction between a father and a daughter where it's just like you've exiled your daughter for all this time. You show up in all your arraignment and you get there and, and you can't even understand why she'd finally want to be free. I mean, that sort of encapsulates that her relationship in her family, where she fits in the place. Um, and it also is done, I think, in a brilliantly, you know, it's very descriptive and just the way the interaction works tells you just in that little path, you know so much about what the relationship is like. Yeah, the gods are, are petty and vengeful and extremely interested in political power and uh, willing to betray or uh, destroy even their loved ones, um, especially their loved ones sometimes uh, for, for their own ends. And there's an interesting, um, I don't have the exact passage, but I do like how she talks about um, 
how Madeline Miller describes what the gods love the most, and that is to to take a human favorite, to build them up, and then to destroy them utterly, to take away all their gifts and just torture them and punish them and make them suffer so that that person will keep on praying to them more and more passionately and desperately uh, to regain the favor that they perceive as um, having lost. So they, they toy with their favorites. Their favorites are especially punished um, and, and brutalized because that's the way gods like it. They like to have you desperately pleading for their attentions. And then if they decide to give you back their favor, then they, they love the fact that you're going to be, you know, 10 times as grateful as you were initially when they picked you as their favorite. So there's definitely, um, and a sense in the world that um, Madeline Miller created that um, the gods are cruel. They're cruel and they're narcissistic and um, their power is to be feared rather than courted. The best I thing th- you can do is stay out of their way. <laughs> yeah. I, I think what's interesting again about the way Madeline Miller conveys this in the book what I love is, you know, as you as you say it, and I'm picturing the stories from the book and the way she describes their interaction, the gods, it just it just struck me. The gods are so much like our celebrities, like our celebrities of today, the modern, wealthy, literati of today. And so we're all just kind of satellites around them. And and the these lesser goddesses like Circe are like their assistants, and mortals are just like the fans and hangers on and maybe one or two stand out in the crowd but it's that kind of sensibility and that kind of feel that the gods have this that's what really i think works for me so much in the novel that these gods they're like you say their cruelty their haughtiness is conveyed in such a way that you can immediately find the human counterpart in in just contemporary culture just by the way it's conducted they're they're in the jet set. They're in the uh, they're in the one percent, and it really feels like it. And Cersei is this, you know, she's like in the three percent and can't quite be treated like she's in that that other inner circle. I mean, because she also gets people deferring to her because she is a goddess, and she gets people who come to her. But they even the mortals who come and other lesser gods who come recognize that she's kind of. She could be a stepping stone to their connection to the, the great gods, or they could get something out of her. But yeah, that feeling in the book, it's so, it's so fascinating. Again, it's, like I say, reading this book is like remembering a dream. So I just, I can see it in the mind's eye. And I just, and what I see in my mind's eye is the darkness of a nightclub, like the modern day nightclubs, and the gods just reciting behind the velvet rope. And that's what they feel like in this novel, you know. So, do you want to talk about the um, the action, like the mythology of Cersei? Yeah, let's give her, let's give it just a little bit of background of her and a little bit of the uh, just the family background. So, so Cersei is an enchantress. Cersei is a 
magician. She has that. She has the gift of magic, and the book talks about that and, and her ability with prophecy and magic. She is the daughter of Helios, who is the the god of the sun. As uh, as guys carry our our old pal Dr. Gary Stickle on our other podcast likes to say, Helios is the sun god, not Apollo. Um, so Helios is the god of the sun, and he is described incredibly well in this. And I'll I'll read a passage for that later. And uh, her mother is the nymph Percy. Now she's a kind of a minor water nymph, uh, and she though she does give birth to these really iconic characters in Greek mythology. So you have Circe, you have Aeetes, who is actually the father of Medea. Mm-hmm. So Medea plays something in this role. And then she has her sister Pasiphae, who marries Minos and gives birth to the Minotaur. Right. So that to me is like what also makes this book interesting. It's, 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 a biography, really a biography very much of, of the gods, you know? And so you get to get to bits and pieces of a lot of famous myths come up because we do Medea shows up in the book and the Minotaur shows up in the book. Odysseus shows up because as part of uh, Circe's lineage, she and Odysseus hook up as they say, uh, and they give birth to a son to I uh, hope I pronounced right. I was not sure where, where the stress is in a lot of the Greek names. Um, and he eventually is the person who, as typical Greek fate would have it, kills Odysseus, his father, without knowing it. He doesn't realize it's his father. Um, through that connection, she meets Penelope, of course, the, the wife of Odysseus, the woman who waited for decades for him to arrive, and Telemachus, the son. So that's her general lineage. Daughter of Helios, sister of Aetes, aunt of Medea, aunt of the Minotaur, really. And those come up. Oh, and we do get a cameo appearance by her uncle Prometheus, who, as we all know, we can sort of talk about each of these characters in their in their mythology. But Prometheus was the bringer of fire to humans, the trickster god. Remember, uh, to just a quick Greek mythology primer, there are the Olympians and the Titans. The Titans were the older gods that predated them. The Olympians were the youngers who wanted to overthrow the Titans and become, take power. And they did. And they have the Titanomachy, which is the war between the Olympians and the Titans. The Olympians eventually win. But Prometheus was a Titan, brought fire to humans, and Zeus punished him by binding him him to the rock, or in some stories, nailing him to the rock, and forcing him to have his body pecked at by vultures for all eternity. So he shows up too. So all of these characters are part of Circe's lineage and world. How's that? Sure. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. okay. Sounds good. So, so you want and to talk Prometheus a little bit about- actually, you know, you say he makes a cameo. He does make a cameo at the beginning. But in many ways, Prometheus is a very defining figure for Circe mm-hmm. because sure. um, he is the first one that she meets who loves humans, who actually has, you know, has set himself up for a lifetime of torment, a lifetime, eternity of torment, because he's immortal, um, for the for the benefit of humans. And so uh, that, I think, sort of plants this seed in her at, at in her youth. Um, 
both of the idea of uh, an heroic gesture, which Prometheus makes, but also the idea that there might be something to these humans more than just, you know, uh, ants that you can fry with a magnifying glass in the sun. Let me read just a little bit of when she sees him, when they bring it, because it's just a beautiful section. When he's brought in, the Furies are brought in to, uh, they lead him in in chains. This is Prometheus. And Circe is watching, and she says, He wore a thick white blindfold and the remnants of a tunic around his waist. His hands were bound in his feet too, yet he did not stumble. I heard an aunt beside me whisper, that the fetters had been made by the great god of smiths, Hephaestus himself, so that not even Zeus could break them. The fury rose up on her vulture wings and drove the manacles high into the wall. Prometheus dangled from them, his arms drawn taut, his bone showing knobs through the skin. Even I, who knew so little of discomfort, felt the ache of it. So certainly seeing that punishment and she tries to ease his suffering. She brings him nectar. She tries to make him feel better. Um, so we do see that kind of compassion and sympathy that yes, she has. That she has alone in her family. No one yeah. else in her family has yes. compassion, sympathy, or God forbid, empathy um, towards anyone else. Even, you know, even her mother, her mother's relationship with her father is one of mutual um, usury uh, in many ways. You know, her mother entraps her father in marriage. Well, convinces her father to marry her um, because it's a step up for her because she's a minor water nymph and he's Peleos, god of the sun. But their children, the unique, the sort of unique thing about her parents um, is that they produce children who are magicians, mm-hmm. um, who have the power of pharmacus, uh, which is a power that gods don't have. Um, and it is uh, a learned power, absolutely. Like she has to, she has to teach herself all of the the different properties of all the herbs and spells and all that sort of thing. But there is something innate in her and her siblings that allow them to, um, to learn these things that the plants speak to her and tell her how they can be used and what their properties are. And this is something that because the other gods, it's a power the other gods cannot grasp, it is something that terrifies them. And so at a certain point, when it, when it becomes clear that all of the offspring of this particular um, union have this power of pharmacus. Um, the gods decree that uh, they can they can no longer have children, that they are not allowed to bear any more children, because this power poses a threat um, that the gods don't know how to counter. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting too when you see the way the different of the children of Circe, Pasiphae, and Aetes handle their power and their magic. I mean, it, again, clearly Circe is the outcast, plain child of the trio, and Pasiphae is the great beauty, but she's also described in the book as just lazy about her power because she doesn't really have to. 
Yeah, um, so she has, she has other attributes that make make her powerful. Right, absolutely. And in her union with Minos, um, well, in this case, not with Minos, uh, but the which when she produces the Minotaur. You know, she summons. She has Daedalus, the great craftsman, summon Circe to the island to help her, to help her through that, to see if there's some help way her through her labor, her labor, in fact, yes, yeah. and and to see if she can find a way to handle this monster that she gives birth to, what she could do about it, and it's it's really interesting that again, it's sort of like the lazy sister summons. The the smart, sharp, overlooked sister uh, is, to go help. Who is desperate for her approval, and she knows it, right? Like she, Cersei repeatedly talks about how, you know, she shouldn't go. She shouldn't go because her her sister is just using her, and she knows that her sister is just using her. But she goes anyway because you know her sister has is the popular one, is the more loved one, and so mm-hmm. she wants her approval. Uh, this is the passage where she, you know, you talk about the magic and how that the power is unusual and rare, uh, and so she's asked to see if there's a way to um, to handle this monster that the sister has produced, and so the passage reads. Among the gods, there are a few who have the gift of prophecy, the ability to peer into the murk and glimpse what the fates will come. Not everything may be seen, may be foreseen. Most gods and mortals have lives that are tied to nothing. They tangle and weed when now and here, now and there, according to no set plan. But then there are those who wear their destinies like nooses, whose lives run straight as planks. However, they try to twist. It's these that our prophets may see. My father had such foreknowledge, and I had, and I heard it said that all my life that the trait was passed to his children also. I had never thought to test it. I had been raised to think that I had none of his strengths, but now I touched the water and said, Show me. An image formed, delicate and pale, as if made from the curls of mist, a smoking torch bobbed in the long corridors, a thread unwound through a stone passage. The creature roared, showing its unnatural teeth. It stood tall as a man, dressed in rotting scraps. A mortal sword in hand leapt from the shadows to strike it dead. The mist ebbed, and the pool cleared again. I had my answer, but it was not the one I had hoped for. The creature was mortal, but it could not die as an infant, by my hand or by Daedalus. It had a fate many years in the future and must live it out. So, anyway, um, I just think Madeline Miller's a really good writer. Yeah. Um, So that that shows that what you had mentioned, that this this power, this unusual gift, um, and her ability to use it in what she saw. What did you what did you think of the Medea sequence? Well, I want to go back to the Minotaur oh, sure, sequence please. as well because of Daedalus, um, because of her connection with Daedalus. Again, you know, Daedalus is this uh, brilliant inventor and engineer and maker, and um, who is being held captive by her sister Pasiphae um, because it amuses her. Because it amuses her that she can hold captive um, 
someone who is as brilliant as Daedalus. And of course, she does it by um, holding captive his son. So she uses love as a tool. She uses it as a tool to increase her own power and to um, and just to you know amuse herself by watching other people squirm. Um, there's a there's a passage um, where uh, where Circe is thinking about this. Um, I walked the dark corridors back to my room. The evening had been pleasant, but I felt roiled and muddy. My mind like river silt stirred up from its beds. I could not stop hearing Daedalus talking of his freedom. There had been such a yearning in his voice and bitterness too. At least I had earned my exile, but Daedalus was innocent, kept only as a trophy for my sister and Minos's vanity. I thought of his eyes when he had spoken of Icarus, that pure shining love. To my sister, it was no more than a tool, a sword to hang over his head and make him her slave. I remembered the pleasure on her face when she had ordered him to cut her open. She had had the same look when I had stepped through her door. I had been so consumed with the Minotaur that I had not seen what a triumph this had all been for her. Not just the monster and her new fame, but everything that went with it. Daedalus forced into complicity, Minos cringing and humiliated, and all of Crete held hostage to fear. And me, I was a triumph too. She might have summoned others, but I had always been the dog she liked to whip. She had known how useful I would be dutifully cleaning her messes, protecting Daedalus, seeing the monster safely contained, and all the while she could laugh from her golden couch. Do you like my new pet? I give her nothing but blows, yet see how she runs to my whistle. So that's the gods and you know how not only how they treat mortals, but also how they treat her. And again, I think it's a just a wonderful study of a relationship, of an interaction. Um, you know, it was interesting. I think I mentioned to you, I'd, I'd listened to some other reviews of the book. and Everyone's entitled to their opinion. But I think some people had missed what, how this story was being unfurled and told and just really this interior development. And you just see... I mean, again, that is that's a classic abused uh, syndrome there, where she just keeps going back because she wants to somehow get that sort of approval and appreciation, like you say. It's a great sequence. It's a great description. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the the sequence with Medea, which you know is is again, it is how many how many generations later, right? Uh, so she's just she is unchanging, and the entire sort of line of all of the various deep Greek myths she gets to you know she gets to appear in all of them, which is which is fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, similar to um, similar to the situation with uh, with Daedalus, she is her her loyalty is always with the underdog. Yeah. I mean, the way it unfolds is I have the sequence, but I will read it, but it's, it's essentially two strangers arrive on the Island. She's sort of, if I remember it right, she sort of recognizes that one of the, one of the strangers seems familiar to the woman, 
there is something, a, a, a dark energy hanging over the whole situation. And she is essentially, Medea and uh, Jason ask her if she could cleanse them, right? Yes, uh, that's, yeah, cleanse them of the murder. Their, and if I can find... Uh, I can find the sequence. I will show you because it's really interesting the way she describes um, uh, the the first time she sees them, the first time they arrive. Um, oh, I think this may be it. Ah, there it is. The anchor dropped with a splash, and the plank followed. Above, gulls circled crying. Two descended, arms touching, heads bowed. A man broad and muscular, his dark hair lifting in the late breeze. And, it surprised me, a woman, tall and wrapped in black, a long veil flowing down behind her. The pair moved towards me gracefully and without hesitation, as if they were expected guests. They knelt at my feet. And the woman held her hands up, long-fingered and bare of all adornment. Her veil was arranged so that not one strand of her hair showed beneath it. Her chin stayed resolutely down, concealing her face. Goddess, she said, Witch of Aea, we come to you for aid. Her voice was low but clear, with a musicality to it, as if it were used to singing. We have fled great evil, and to escape it we have done great evil. We are tainted. I could feel it. That unwholesome air had thickened, coating everything with an oily heaviness. Miasma, it was called. Pollution. It rose from the unpurified crimes, from deeds done against the gods, and from the unsanctified spilling of blood. It had touched me after the Minotaur's birth, until Deity's waters washed me clean or Dictee's water, excuse me, wash me clean. But this was stronger, a foul, seeping contagion. Will you help us, she said. And so it begins. Yeah. And, she and like, you know, the hair is covered because it would reveal... Who she is and yeah. what she has done. And so Medea um, and Jason trick her into uh, promising to, uh, to cleanse them, to absolve them of the taint of the deed before... Um, revealing themselves to her because if they had done that before, she would not have agreed. So um, they take advantage of, you know, the rules of um, hospitality, uh, you know, the, the sort of Greek cultural rules of hospitality. Um, wow. This, I've just, just to jump very quickly, this has been coming up regularly in the Odyssey. We're doing a, we're doing a series on the Odyssey and Gary talks about those Greek rules of hospitality one of which, and we just did on the episode that I'll be putting on today, is that you show up at a at the house in this in the Greek rules, and you are as a stranger, and they will roll out the welcome mat, the bed, the food, prepare a feast. All these things will be done for you before they even ask who you are. Right. Right. So anyway, sorry yeah. to jump in, but that's that was yeah. That was so you know, they're they essentially they sort of trick her into doing what only she can do. Um, but she is not resentful of them. And, you know, the other recurring theme in this book um, appears in this story as well, which is that she knows, she can see in, in the way that Jason interacts with Medea that it's already starting to go south. 
Um, and she, uh, before you, before you go to that, can you please tell the listener what the deed they had done was? What was the evil? No, you deed? tell. Oof, well, in order to flee, uh, Medea killed her own brother. She killed her own brother. And so that of course is also Cersei's nephew. And, uh, that is the deed from which she must be cleansed. Right, right. Um, fratricide, and, uh, right? No, what is? Hor- it's fratricide. It's fratricide, horrible. Yeah, yeah. No matter what, um, but yes. So, um, but she she sees in in uh, Jason's face that he is going to turn against Medea. That, uh, however great his love was when he made the promise to her, um, and when she aided him and saved his life. Um, and made him into a hero for killing the Minotaur. That um, that uh, that it was going to go badly, and she, you know, she she tries to decide whether or not she's going to say something to Medea. Um, but uh, but I believe she doesn't. In the end, she doesn't say anything. But um, but it it touches on a theory uh, on a theme that runs through the whole book, which is that um, men are dicks. Men are men are really horrible in this book. Yeah, horrible. To, yeah, without question. Horrible without, does, to, she... without question, horrible to women. Abusive and betraying and using and all of the above. Yeah. Well, as we know from everything we do in this podcast that this is in an age of the great wheeled wagon warriors who just have to get their way across the earth and everyone else the heck with them so and that particularly means women she does actually say something to medea but medea just kind of spurns okay you know, spurns it so it's she not does willing to does, hear it yeah she just can't hear it but um it, it's <sighs> Yeah, like you say that 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 theme. Well, Jason, one of the reasons, one of the things you like you say, she sees that Jason. Jason gets what he needs out of her. He gets cleansed. He gets cleansed of yeah. this deed that he's party to, um, and that and she and I believe the way Cersei puts it is that she could see that once he had gotten what he wanted, she would, he became bored with her. Yes. Yeah. He didn't need Medea. Exactly. Um, She'd served her purpose, and he was ready to move on. Yeah. It, it, you know, and again, we see this obviously throughout the ancient world and particularly in the Greek world where the, sort of these guys have, you know, there's one rule for them and another rule for the women in their lives, um, which is nothing new, of, of course, in the world. But it's particularly stark in these stories where, where female characters are made into these epic villainous, um, villainesses, but you know, when you really look into what's going on with them, there is clearly, clearly, like you say, a brutality of treatment that's, that they are involved with. And of course, the great Greek writers were able to bring that out. I mean, I think Homer brings it out generally in the Iliad. He's interestingly in the Odyssey, there's some more misogynistic elements, which is interesting. Um, but you can see it in Euripides and Aeschylus and um, you know, it's, it's just, there's a lot of works you can see it in. Um, so anyway, um, so the, and yeah, so continuing on with this particular theme, uh, you know, we come to, um, Odysseus arriving on the Island. Um, but 
sort of precursor to that and why she turns all of his crew uh, into pigs mm-hmm. is, um, is that sailors start landing on her island and without fail, uh, no matter how courteous and kind she is to them, you know, uh, she lives in a house that is enchanted, that never runs out of food or drink, and that cleans itself. So, oh my God, sounds like heaven. Um, <laughs> so, you know, she always has feasts to offer them when they are shipwrecked wrecked on her island. And without fail, as soon as they find out that there's no man in the picture, that she's a woman living alone, they immediately try to rape her. Um, gang rape her, in fact. Yeah. Uh, so this only and uh, sorry, I should have put a trigger warning at the beginning of uh, at the mm. beginning of this um, episode. But um, but yeah, so she um, she is one bit once bitten, um, and she figures out that this is going to happen. She's you know, unsurprisingly, this is going to happen again, and so she has her magic ready. And she, to her credit, she uh, she does not jump the gun. She waits until the it becomes clear what that their intentions have changed from courteous acceptance of her hospitality to a predatory um, stance of taking advantage of her. And the second she sees that shift, she turns them into pigs. Um. And, you know, there's this beautiful, beautiful description of how um, when she transforms living things from one one form to another, that they never, they don't forget what they were. So, like, if she transforms a fish into a bird, the, the bird that she has created doesn't know how to fly because it thinks it's still a fish. So when she transforms men into pigs, they still understand that they're men in pig form and that that is the sort of the sort of, you know, special sauce on the on the revenge. Yeah, um, is that she has made rendered them harmless um, and they are aware of. uh, Her actions upon them her power over them may i ask you oh i'm sorry you're going to yeah so uh, you know this is where odysseus um comes into the story and he is respectful and uh, and even though they become obviously they become lovers and uh right before he leaves she allows herself to get pregnant by him um because she can control whether or not she uh conceives as a goddess. Um, and he is different because he's married and he loves his wife. So even though she is a woman alone, um, you know, he doesn't treat her brutally. He talks to her of his wife immediately. And, and his love for his wife is evident in, um, in his, his, attitude towards her and because of that he keeps himself from also being transformed into a pig and eventually um wins uh, a reprieve for his men and uh on his authority they 
you know, her, his men stay away from her. And, um, and she is hungry for companionship because she's stuck. She's banished to this Island. So she doesn't get to visit other people. She is dependent uh, for any sort of um, interaction, any sort of uh, community or society on the people who stop at her Island. Um, so, you know, he has all of these amazing stories, 10 years worth of stories is what she sees when she looks at him. And, um, so, you know, they fall in love and, uh, and she bears, uh, him a child when they leave. And that brings her to, um, you know, of course, she raises the child in with the intention that he will never leave the island. And of course, um, you know, you know, sure as right as rain and sure as as um, summer turns to fall that he is going to want to leave the island. Um, and in this case, it is with a little bit of help from one of the Olympian gods who loves to mess with her. Um, and so he starts showing up on the island and talking to Telegonus or Telogonus or however it's pronounced. Telogonus, exactly, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, starts telling him stories of the outside world and as a young kid and then in an adolescent, of course, you know, immediately he wants to see it all for himself. So eventually he grants her permission. Uh, he gets her permission to leave, um, to go find his father, Odysseus. Uh, but she is terrified, of course, that he will die in the attempt. Um, so she decides to make him a weapon that will kill anything, even gods. But in order to do so, she has to a break her, break her, um, her exile. She has to go down deep into the ocean, and she finds a monster, um, the uh, the um, trigon, which is a mm -hmm. deep sea monster, whose tail uh, bears in it a venom that is that is fatal um, to mortals. And will produce um, will produce endless agony in gods who touch it. And he asks from her in exchange for his tail, um, the part of his body that is this weapon. He asks that she expose herself to the poison. So she basically sentences herself to endless agony forever. Um, and in exchange for that, um, he will give her that part of his body to make a weapon out of it. And the way that Madeline Miller describes it is that many gods have come to find Trigon to try to get this weapon. And he has offered them, the, you know, all of them the deal. If you, if you willingly subject yourself to an eternity of agony, then I will give you this incredibly ridiculously powerful weapon. And none of the gods have accepted that bargain. But because she is our Circe, and because when she was a child, she met Prometheus and sympathized with the choice he made, 
in order to protect her son and also as a mother, of course, mm -hmm. right. um, in order to protect her son, she agrees. She agrees to a lifetime of relentless agony um, in, in exchange for a weapon that will protect her son. And the Trigon says, all you needed to do was agree. So he spares her touching the venom, spares her the bargain, because he understands that she is sincere in, in being the only god who had the who had the other centeredness you know who was not self-centered mm -hmm. um so self-centered that they could not agree to his bargain um so she gets the weapon and that weapon is eventually how um telegonus inadvertently kills his own father as was you know prophesied by the gods so as Athena did not want to occur. Yes. Uh, she yes. wanted to protect her Odysseus. Um, her favorite. Well, well, let's go through. Why don't we take it through to the end? And then I want to ask you a couple of questions. Your feeling on a couple of these plot points you talked about, because, again, having listened to different takes on this, I'm interested in your take on it. So we, you know, we get to the point where obviously he, Kill, the fate is that he will kill Odysseus. And then we, a, a curious pairing occurs, right? At the end, in yes, terms of. Yes. Yeah. So, what, you, because there is, a, there is a myth that has a more curious pairing that I've talked to you about before. But as you point out in this book, it's only part of that pairing occurs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, Telegonus is her son uh, by Odysseus. Mm -hmm. um, and in the wake of the death of Odysseus, um, you know, Penelope had been and Telemachus had been holding on to this kingdom for, what, 20 years in anticipation mm -hmm. of Odysseus's return, um, despite all sorts of internal pressures and external pressures. Um, to put a different dude in power. Um, but when Odysseus, you know, has, has come back and has started to um, basically started to lose it, you know, his, um, his 20 years of trials, once he finally returns home and kills all the suitors and restores himself to power, um, he can't, essentially he has PTSD he can't relax. And so he starts to see threats everywhere and gets um, exceedingly paranoid and, um, and starts to victimize his own son and his own wife. Yeah, um, PTSD is a great way to describe it. That's yeah, yeah. He is hypervigilant. You know, he can't let go of being constantly at war and constantly in peril. Um, so, uh, so, Telemachus, after Odysseus is killed, Telemachus and Penelope um, are basically, uh, they see the writing on the wall, and before they are um, massacred and the nation is taken over, they leave of their own volition and they come to the island. They come to um, Circe's island for refuge and also um, for understanding. Um, because Circe holds a piece of Odysseus's history that Penelope and Telemachus 
want to understand. And so there's this wonderful sort of idyll of peace where Penelope and Circe, although everything in their society tells them that they should be enemies and rivals, they sort of find their way into a fellowship, um, a sisterhood, I guess I should say, to give it mm-hmm. the, a different, you know, the appropriate gender marker. Um, and Telemachus and Telegonus, you know, as half brothers, um, find a, a friendship between the two of them. And, uh, and in the process, um, Circe falls in love with Telemachus and vice versa. Yeah. It's, what's interesting about that is in Roman myth, I think it's a particular, specifically Roman myth, but I'll have to double check that. So Telemachus falls for Circe, but Telegonus falls for Penelope. So it's a, it's because I looked at that again and I was mm-hmm. like, okay, no, I didn't imagine that. So it's like the, the sons end up with the the opposite mothers. Yes, the half-brothers uh, end up with the other brother's mother. The other brother's mother, which, yes, we know would be a sitcom. or A Saturday Night thing. Live sketch, I believe, is what it is. A, a but, sketch uh, or, yeah, or some other kind of film. Mm-hmm. But, yes, it would, it would it's a really, yeah. it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating occurrence because it, it's, it's, it's almost like a myth that predates that patriarchal Greek notion of relationships. It's almost like it's from an earlier matriarchal framework because it's just not the kind of thing I'd ever expect to see in a Greek myth. Yes. You know, you you expect the son, what the sons to try to avenge each, kill each other, you know, battle each other or could go after each other's mother and some sort of vendetta. But no, this ends in a very different way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, Athena, who who was thwarted by Circe's um, protection of her own son, um, because, you know, she gives, she knows that Athena will come for Telegonus um, if Telegonus tries to meet his father because the prophecy that he'll accidentally kill his own father. Um so she knows Athena would do everything she could to prevent that meeting, and that's why she gives him the weapon. Um, but having thwarted Athena, Athena returns to thwart her, and um, you know first offers Telemachus Odysseus's, um, you know her favor to rise, raise him up to be as famous as Odysseus is, and Telemachus who has you know, sort of had enough of all of this, this being a favorite of the gods and who has seen the writing on the wall with his father, the way his uh, relationship with Athena went with his father. Um, He does the inconceivable and says no to a goddess, says, no, I don't want your fame and fortune and favor. I, I am content to just live and die as a normal human being. And, uh, and, you know, Circe should have seen this coming, but doesn't. And that is that, uh, you know, Athena immediately offers the same bargain to Circe's son, which would take him off the island, take him away from Circe's influence, um, and basically, you know, take away the only, the only person she still has 
in her life that loves her and that she loves. So, mm-hmm. um, but the last laugh is Cersei's. There is a happy ending. I don't know if you want to spoil it for our listeners. Um, well, I would right, rather not. But uh, you, okay, I was going to yeah. say the book's been out long enough. It's, yeah, yeah, it's probably okay. But, but. Um, Cersei finds a way around, um, you know, around Athena's machinations yet again, and um, finds a way to be with Telemachus and to live the the true life. Um, the life that is most in keeping with who she truly is. Um, so in the end, she gets her happy ending. Well, I think I was, there were a couple of questions I wanted to pursue, but I would rather end on the happy ending for now. Um, all in all, again, I think I highly recommend this book. I think it is, um, I think it's just beautifully written. Like I say, I, I remember it as if remembering a dream. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I, I can't more highly praise a writer than that because that's the kind of writing I love. Yeah. Um, so, and Dawn, you would say? Yeah, absolutely. Strongly recommend it. It's a really fun uh, take on a whole group of Greek myths. Um a different sort of different way of looking at them and and you know in the sort of tradition of reclaiming male heavy male driven narratives by talking about the female character um that is sort of circumstantial in the male story and taking her and making her the main character um, I think that uh, Madeline Miller's book is definitely the, one of the most successful uh, of that um, of that genre that I have read. Well, on that note, I want to thank you all for listening. First, I want to thank Don Sam Alden. Thank you, Don. <laughs> And thank you, Sean. Thank you for uh, for being, as always, my co-pilot. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to being on the flip side of the surgery and uh, getting a chance to um, to return. Fly to, again soon, right? Yes, to fly again soon, indeed. Well, so thank you all for listening. This has been the 34 Circe Salon, Make Matriarchy Great Again. We've been reviewing the book the novel Circe by Madeline Miller. Thank you for listening. Take care, everyone, and blessed be.